0: Hi, folks. This is the Leadership Hour. I'm Steve Adubato. I'm here with my colleague, executive producer and on-air colleague, Mary Gambus, Talking about leadership, You've gone from being a behind-the-scenes person, Mary Gamba, to being out front, and I can't get a word in edgewise.
1: I know. I love it. An executive (laughs) producer. I love every time that you introduce me, I have a new title and a promotion, so we'll talk the business side later. I
0: did not talk promotion at all, and I definitely didn't talk about more money. (laughs) And I hear my good friend Neil Shapiro laughing in the back end because he's had to deal with these issues as (laughs) well. This is the Leadership Hour. We're being heard on AM 970 in New York. There's also a podcast. Our podcast audience is growing more and more every day. Mary, talk a little bit about how folks, people can get us on the podcast. Yeah,
1: people can subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes as well as on Google Play. So it's really great. We all have our back issues and additions up there so people can go on and subscribe at their convenience. What about the
0: free articles about leadership and communication on a particular website?
1: Sure, stand-deliver.com. We have free articles. We also have a link there to pick up your book, Lessons in Leadership, which has lots of great topics and tools (laughs) for any anyone leading at any level. And also, too, they can follow us on Facebook, Steve Adubato PhD, that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, and on Twitter, Steve Adubato.
0: All right, enough with the plugging.
1: I know, but you got to do it.
0: All right. And by the way, speaking of my book, Lessons in Leadership, one of um, the great testimonials I was able to get, I don't think we had to press too hard. You'll see it right away. is from Neil Shapiro, and, and our good friend Neil Shapiro joins us on the phone. Neil is the president and chief executive officer of WNET, he's also the person, uh, and if you're living and in, in watching, excuse me, watching, listening in New Jersey, there would not be something called NJTV, which is under the umbrella of WNET. There would not be public broadcasting, and I say this publicly in every place I can, there would not be public broadcasting in New Jersey if it were not for Neil's leadership. He's also a big part of the PBS family and formally, Neil, did you have a little job over um, <laughs> at NBC a while back?
2: Yeah, I I did. Uh, I ran the news division a while ago.
0: Oh, that. (laughs) Talk about leadership. First of all, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Question, and by the way, Neil's a big Yankee fan. We'll talk about that in a little bit, and not about X's and O's, but frankly, more about leadership in the Yankees in all seriousness. Neil, if you were to describe your overall leadership approach, which I think I know pretty well because we've worked together in a variety of situations over the years, do you have some basic tenets of your leadership approach?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think one is to have a clear sense of vision, but don't make it so concrete that you're not willing to listen to input from other people. I think you need to keep an organization moving forward and have a sense of where you want to go, but you have to be willing to have people who will tell you you're wrong sometimes and then listen to that. And the second thing I think is you should never ask someone to work harder than you will hmm. or ask someone to do things you wouldn't do. And I've to, I think in simple terms, that's what I've tried to do it.
0: But there's more to it than that, you know, and, and I say this only because I know it. You challenge those of us who are part of the public broadcasting family, and I should fully disclose our production company, our not-for-profit production company, the Caucus Educational Corporation, is one of the many, quote-unquote, independent producers that are affiliated with public broadcasting. But we run our own operation, but we live under the umbrella of public broadcasting. And, Neil, in all candor, you have challenged many of us as independent producers not just to raise the money— to be on the air and do what we need to do, but to produce a superior broadcast product. You've never been shy about saying what needs to be done and why, have you?
2: No, and and look, I think part of being a leader, it's not just for public television, it's anything. Uh, You know, one valuable thing I remember learning as I was coming up and, and working at NBC at the time, owned by GE, GE had this thing about it's the voice of the consumer, and the whole thing was, you know, if you're not careful, you end up designing for the people who are designing. So they would tell this great story about they were designing a brand-new refrigerator, and they bought all these people in, and the designers who designed it had the handle at the very top because they thought that's how you get the best <laughs> seal and the best leverage, and that's how they want to use it. They brought all these consumers in, and they hated it. They couldn't reach the handle. And the engineers kept saying, no, this is where it should be. And for the engineers, maybe that's how they want to design it, but it's not how people use it. We as producers tend to produce things we like and it's hard not to fall into a rut you're doing the things you like it's worth being reminded all the time that our audience changes that the world changes around them and that we need to change with them and that sometimes means doing things we're not used to or beyond our comfort zone but if you get stuck in a rut in anything but especially in television in the long run you're not going to succeed and oh. part of my job as a leader is to say, you know what, I don't have to do what you do. I don't have to make sure that I have money to do every single show. I don't have to face what I know is that terrifying thing of you have to feed the beast every day or every week. <laughs> You've got to come up with more content. And that takes a tremendous amount of energy. And often you're so focused on that, it's helpful for someone like me to stand back and say, I know while you're doing that, by the way, have you noticed there's a titanic shift in politics? Are we thinking about that? So, for example, some of those bigger trends – may not be so apparent to you when you're trying to feed the beast every day or every week.
0: You know, it's interesting because Neil has the perspective of being a leader at a major, (laughs) one of the big three, if you will, at NBC. Do you see any other significant difference being a leader within the PBS system, the public broadcasting system, and being a top leader in NBC? Or is it basically all the same with a few nuances?
2: I think there's one big difference. I think quality journalism is quality journalism. But, you know, I, you never forget when it's commercial television, it's commercial television. And every minute gets rated, and there's a commercial cost, and there's a commercial benefit for every minute. And that's always a part of it. And I think I'm proud of a lot of what I did, but I did it within constraints that I was well aware of. In public television, though we care about the audience, we care more about the number of eyeballs we get. We care about the souls that we touch. And we don't have always measure just by that. And we're, we understand that we will do things, and they may not work. Hmm. And we'll keep trying to do them better. You know, in the in the world of commercial television, you see programs that are launched and canceled the same day. You know, in two or three weeks, an entire series could go away. I think we're much more patient because we realize that we're trying to do the Lord's work and it may not pay off in the short term. But that's okay. We're in it for the long game.
0: It's interesting. Neil's approach to leadership is, is beyond, again, dare I say the term X's and O's and just techniques. It's a deeper – I don't want to use the word spiritual, but there's a deeper – mission. And, and and to that end, Neil, for years, you were the driving force behind creating a series called Metro Focus on the air every day. It's not a classic news program, fair to say, Neil?
2: That's true. I think it's more of a, I think it's sort of a cross between sort of a smart public affairs discussion show, but trying to be topical within a day or two of the news.
0: Talk about the leadership skills and traits necessary to not only get that on the air, but Dare I say, keep it on the air. By the way, it is seen on WNET, WLIW, NJTV, three of the major public broadcasting stations right here in our region. The leadership involved in that beyond the production skills and tools.
2: Well, you know, I think it's a good example for anybody because it's so easy to have people tell you why something can't happen. <laughs> um, and MetroFocus was one of those things where people said, look, we're never going to be able to get the resources to do this. We're not going to be able to find the people. We're not going to be able to find the topics that are worthy of this. But I had a longer vision and I just didn't believe that. So what I said is, look, we don't have to take the hill right away. Let's just land on the beach. So let's first start and do a weekly show. And let's make that show as good as it can be. And let's see what we'll learn. Let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't. And then we expand to be, you know what, why don't we see if we could do specials. Let's do a weekly show and specials. And then we got to be, okay, you know what, in a year we're going to do a daily show.
3: And we're going to make
2: that work. And having did that, then we said, you know, we're going to find a way to repeat it, so we're going to be on seven days a week. (laughs) And now we do that and say, by the way, when there's big breaking news, we're going to use that same infrastructure to do that too. So I think it's being understanding, letting people tell me what's the aggressive timeline, but not taking my foot off the pedal, and saying, you know what? At the end of the day, there's gonna be a daily show. You're gonna help me figure it out, but we're gonna get there.
0: And building that great team.
2: You know what I love about television? Maybe it's true for all industries, but it's especially true about television. I love the teamwork that's involved in television. I love the fact that when TV really works, what's great is someone has an idea, and as you add more talent to people, the ideas get better and better, and the execution gets better and better. And if you're honest with yourself, oftentimes what you end up with at the end is so much better than your initial idea if you get the right people and you're open to letting them do great work.
0: You're listening to Neil Shapiro, president and chief executive officer of WNET, the PBS flagship station in our nation. I'm Steve Atabato, This is Mary Gamba. This is the Leadership Hour, whether you're listening to us live on the radio or on our podcast. And by the way, Neil spends an awful lot of time thinking about with his team other ways of distributing content outside of traditional television per se, but along those lines, Neil, you mentioned teamwork. Do you mind if I bring up the Yankees? No. Okay. So we are taping this show while, uh, let's just say, there are playoff games going on right now. The World Series will be happening soon. And let's just say that the team that Neil and I root for, along with millions of others, the New York Yankees will not be participating. Neil. My
2: evening calendar is now open in a way it wasn't. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I, I'm a baseball fan. I have not watched one inning. I was going to say,
1: <laughs> I'm sorry for your loss, gentlemen.
0: That's okay. But here's here's what I'm curious about. Beyond talent, and beyond great pitching and hitting and the things, that, again, you and I and some of our other friends talk about, Phil Alonji is on a group. <laughs> me, Phil, and our friend Phil Alonji, who's heads up the news operation at NJTV, we're texting each other after losses like, oh, what went wrong? And But beyond all that, Neil, how much do you feel that the Yankees struggles with a really talented team is in some way— Involved in leadership and management and decision making on the part of those who are not actually playing on the field? It's a loaded question, I know.
2: Well, I think it has to be, right? I think when teams succeed, it's that combination of great. And it's also like when great companies succeed, it's a combination of great people on the field and great front office people. And to the Yankees' credit, it's an amazing story. The Yankees changed their philosophy a couple years ago and said, you know what, we're not going to make it, we're going to retool. And it often takes a long time to do that. The Houston Astros, which I, I believe are still playing as we record this thing, yes. endured three of the worst seasons in baseball history. And the premise was we're going to get early draft picks, and over time we can get back in this thing. And now they're quite a good team. But they had three years of horrible baseball. The Yankees said, you know what, we're going to get some younger players. In a half a season, they were back in it. So I think in terms of the talent in front of us, that's a pretty amazing accomplishment. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. I do think as you look at 162 games of baseball there and the gazillion decisions that are made there every day, I have to say, as a manager myself and as a leader, I feel some sympathy with any leader whose every single decision is examined and cross-examined and evaluated.
0: Oh, Hold on, Neil, before you go any further. I'm going to be really specific. Yeah. I was critical, along with many others, and this is not about baseball, folks. It's about leadership management and dealing with tough situations. When Aaron Boone did not go in to take out... Severino at a certain time in my mind and I can't get inside his head neither can you Neil I was thinking is he uncomfortable is the manager of the Yankees uncomfortable going out pulling a pitcher in a life and not life and death but a do or die game because he might think he's hurting his feelings I don't really know but Neil is it unfair for those of us on the outside to go come on I would never have done that and you seem to be saying you understand
2: that other side. No, you know, it, it is what makes baseball great, and it's part of every manager gets. That's what makes a game so much fun, and you never know the road not taken. So it's perfectly appropriate. I do feel some sympathy for anybody who puts himself in that situation, but he or she chooses to do it. About this specific case uh, that you mentioned, did Aaron Boone stay with the starting pitchers too long in the playoffs? I think he did, and certainly easy to say what happened. You know, they went on to lose both those games. But here's what I think is interesting in terms of style. The Yankees made a change from Joe Girardi, also an accomplished manager and someone who will doubtless be back. And Joe is known as an incredibly intense manager. Yes. Every single game, every single inning was important to him. And the Yankees made a change because they felt they got a lot of young players, and that was not working for them. The younger players needed someone more younger, was able to relate more. Maybe wasn't quite so intense. Um, and there's a lot of people said that, that, you know, the Yankees got more than 100 wins on a team that wasn't that good, wasn't worth 100 wins because Aaron Boone did a good job of keeping their spirits up over a long season, about players who weren't performing and keeping them in.
0: All leadership traits. All and leadership traits. On about
2: the Yankees have a catcher who may one day be a really great catcher or not. <laughs> and, and Joe Giordi had been very hard on him, and Aaron Boone was not. He had a disappointing season, but a strong playoff performance. And I think what's interesting is I thought during the course of the season, Aaron Boone was the right guy for this team. I thought he got a lot out of them. Um, I thought he dealt with some catastrophic injuries in the Yankee and starting pitching that's still not that good, and the Yankees stayed in it. And then I thought during the playoffs, I kind of missed Joe Girardi. <laughs> I kind of missed maybe. We needed that guy who felt every inning was important and every out was important, and maybe he wouldn't have stayed with those starting pitchers so long.
0: Are you talking about situational leadership?
2: I'm talking, yeah, I think the difference between like, long-term strategy and situational leadership and do those things change. And as a leader... How do you go back and forth between the two?
0: You have to do it.
2: Yep. And I think it's both necessary and hard. And I think, you know, you can think about the military, right? There's the long view about we need to win the war and the short-term view about we need to take that hill. (laughs) And the problem is if you are one of those guys who always worries about taking the hill, you may lose the war. But if you're one of those guys who only is hooked on and doesn't understand which hills you really need to take, you can also lose the war. Wow. So I think it's interesting. What times do you step up? We talked about Metro Focus. There are times where I've normally said to them, you know what? You don't have to respond to every news story. We're not that. But there's are times say, you know what? I don't care what it costs. We're going to do it. So when Superstorm Sandy hit. That's right. It's huge. Right. right. You know what I said? No, not now. Now that's the biggest story, I don't care what it costs. We're going to do it. Get people in right? Go on as long as you can. But it takes the wisdom to say, all right, that's one of those stories. And a day of horrendous traffic in New York City is not one of those stories. And you have to find that balance. And I think the team has to know that you have the wisdom to recognize what's really big and what isn't.
0: So interesting. Neil's talking about having a style, but then adapting your style to the situation around you. Neil, before I let you go, I'm curious about this. You've also been someone who has, dare I say, developed a lot of talent. What I mean by that is seeing things in people. There are people on the Metro Focus team and people in our public broadcasting world that that came on as producers, they were not on-camera people. And I know that you have played a hand, along with others, in saying, you know what? We see something there. And those people now are first-class broadcasters, journalists, interviewers. Is that part of your leadership approach to see things in people that they may not even see in themselves and say, hey, you ask questions off-camera, why not try this? Is that Am I making too much of that?
2: no that's absolutely right and it's also frankly that's the easy part the harder part but also important when someone says i really see myself as a something and say you know what i don't think i see you that way i think you could be this but not necessarily that those are harder conversations to have but i think important not to say i'm always right but you know I think it's especially hard, it's unfair for someone late in their career if they spent a long time doing something and everybody kind of knows they're really not good at it, but nobody's had the courage to tell them. And then they get at some point they realize nobody's ever going to, I've been pursuing the wrong thing. <laughs> right? And sometimes you can direct people and say, you know what, you know, some of the best producers I ever worked with in my life or I think were frustrated anchor people who at some point realized I could be a really good executive producer and they became great executive producers or great managers. And conversely, as you said, there are other people who start out that way and end up on camera, and all range of people in between. So I think part of um as a manager, especially when people are younger, is trying to give them direct feedback. Help them get better at the things that are good at and discourage them And if you think they're really ill-matched at some of the things that they want to
0: do. Yeah, real quick, Mary and I have been harping on the issue of when we see defensiveness in people when we give them constructive feedback. I'm sorry for people who listen to the Leadership Hour on a regular basis and hear this theme, but I'm obsessed by it. You give someone direct feedback, something that's hard to hear, Neil, but you know they need to hear it in order to get better, and you can see that they're just fighting it and won't respond well. Do you see that as a significant failing on their part and question their potential to grow?
2: If they're young, I don't. If they're young, I say, you know what? I think you're being a little defensive. I want you to go off and think about it. I want, let's come back to talk about this again tomorrow. Right? If it's a consistent pattern, then I think it's a huge problem for them. I mean, at some point now, they've had, they've had experience, and if, they, if that's a quality of their personality, I think it will, it will forever be a problem for them.
0: Yeah, by the way, Neil and I, we often talk about kids. Neil has three boys. Uh, they're often at the Yankee games with him, even though they're not doing it right now. Um, real quick, while the game is being played or after, do you ever talk about the game not in terms of batting, pitching, bunting, fielding, and as a leadership thing? I don't know whether you call it leadership or not. Do you ever get into that stuff with them in sportsmanship?
2: I always say to them, you know, the, the thing that I love about baseball, especially watching them play, is not that I, they're ever going to be major league players. What I love is watching them be good citizens. I love it when they help other players. I mean, that's what I love about baseball, right? It's a game where nobody succeeds all the time. You win or succeed as a team. You do better when you help each other. And when they're when they're good at that, it makes me feel really proud.
0: You know, it's funny. Neil talked about being good citizens. Mary and I talk about this all the time with our own children. Brian Bardour, our Senior producer, executive producer on this end, making things happen. We talk about all of our kids, and maybe in the end, what it comes down to is, as parents, our job is to help our kids be the best citizens of this world they can be, which hopefully morphs into leadership skills. Neil Shapiro is the president and chief executive officer of WNET. He's been a, a friend of ours, a, a mentor on so many levels, and a leader in the PBS world and um, Thank you for taking the time with your, particularly with your schedule, Neil. Thanks for joining us on the Leadership Hour.
2: Thanks. Great to talk to both of you.
0: Got it. Well, Neil has given us a lot to think about being good citizens. You know, he, I don't want to belabor the Yankee thing, but I do realize that it's so easy to be a fan.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's so easy to be critical from the sidelines. Like, why did he leave him in? Why didn't he do this? But when Joe Girardi was the manager, the leader, if you will, on the field of the Yankees, it was like, why is he so tough on those guys? He's never going to be able to get the young players to respond because he's an old school guy. And, and he, Girardi expected from others what he expected of himself, which is maximum, maximum level. And the reason I'm saying this is because more and more there are players. There was actually a guy, know, his name is Manny Machado. Manny Machado had a quote. He's a really talented baseball player. This isn't about baseball. It's about leadership. He said the other day, I think people expect me to be Johnny. Maybe he said Johnny Hustle. You can check out the quote. I think he was actually talking about Pete Rose. They called him Charlie Hustle. But the reason he was saying it is he goes, listen, I'm a home run hitter. I don't hustle. And some people were like, well, yeah, he's really that good. Like, he doesn't hustle. Well, if you don't hustle on a ground ball and there's a runner on first base – and that runner gets thrown out at second and you should have gotten to first and you don't get there because you don't hustle and then the inning ends or your team loses, I don't know. And then you don't talk to Manny Machado and say, Manny, you got to hustle down first base. I don't care how many home runs you hit. I don't know. I see that as a tremendous leadership weakness that you're afraid to tell your star player. Mm -hmm. You're afraid to talk to Odell Beckham of the Giants that he's acting like an idiot on the sidelines and he shouldn't be – Criticizing his teammates publicly. Oh no, he's such a good. Oh, we just signed him to a multi-million dollar contract. He's the franchise. Really? What is it? What? do you call him? Yeah, Johnny Hustle. Johnny. Yeah, he got not it wrong. my cup it's, of tea. He says being Johnny Hustle is not my cup of tea. Uh, that's another way of saying. Listen, you're paying me ten million dollars plus. I'm not going to work that hard. I already got my money. And the manager leader's job is to say, no problem, Manny. You say, Mary.
1: It's a poor leadership quality.
0: You've seen it. You're a big hockey fan. You see it in hockey.
1: I do. And it's really interesting because of course I know hockey, you know baseball. And just watching the different leadership style and how it works or doesn't work. With players and and coaches. With players and and coaches and GMs and CEOs. And we've seen it in corporations where a leader changes because the other CEO either aged out, retires. You have a succession plan in place. A younger leader comes in, a different leadership style. It's not to say one is right or wrong, but there is something to be said for, as you were talking about, Girardi. Well,
0: a lot of people said, just to your point, there are many who said, even though Joe Girardi won, Mm He was, quote, too tough, too old school, too in your face, mm-hmm. was not patient with Gary Sanchez, the catcher who was making a lot of mistakes. Kip yeah. was like, what do you mean? Why can't you put your glove in the right position? The ball keeps getting past you. Girardi was a former catcher. It's not about baseball. He was saying, look, if you can't catch that ball, I'm taking you out of there. They were like, oh, you know, you can't talk to Sanchez mm-hmm. that way because we have a big contract with him. We have a big investment. Why don't you take the leader's job and tie his or her hands behind the back and say, go lead?
1: Right, and if you go to the opposite end, Boone not making a tough decision and and sticking his to his convictions, or was he sticking to his convictions because he felt that he could or should? And again, hindsight is twenty twenty. We have the benefit of seeing how the game played out, literally. However, is there that happy medium in between the Boone and the Girardi? By the
0: way, I don't really know that he wasn't trying to hurt his feelings, but I will no, say this:
1: for whatever reason, he didn't make. But the don't ra-
0: you need to? Mm, don't you need to know your people and know something about their tendencies? And and
1: that's the thing. I don't think it's as black and white as saying that Girardi was right or Boone is right. I think it's a matter of adapting your leadership skills, leadership, the way that you lead your team, you need to adapt if you're a great leader based on the person that you are trying to And the to lead. situation you face. Exactly. Not everyone needs a really tough, rough communication approach. Some people need a little bit more hand-holding, a little bit more love and hugging, whereas other people you literally need to scream at in order for them to hear you and react the way that you want them to react. So I do think mm. that it is upon the leader to adjust his or her the way that they communicate based on the person. You know, this is
0: interesting. Mary, do this because I know we're talking about the Yankees a lot. I did an in-depth interview with Joe Torre, and I'd like to get that interview. Mm -hmm. I did an in-depth interview with him, the former uh, Hall of Famer, manager of the Yankees, now with a top executive position in Major League Baseball. I did an interview with Joe Torre on the question of leadership, and I want to get that. It would be great for us. It was at the Cone Resnick Mm -hmm. annual golf outing. I sat with him. And I don't want to give too much away because we will get that interview and use it. I asked him about treating people differently as a leader. And he said he knew that with David Cohn, Mm -hmm. his pitcher, he could speak to him a certain way. He could be tough. He could be aggressive. Uh, David was not defensive. He could say, listen, you don't have it anymore. Give me the ball. I'm taking you out. With David Wells a different David, with a different personality, different style, different demeanor. Tori, I remember saying, if I had this right, no, I had a different tone with him. I had to talk to him a different way because he could be very, quote, temperamental. And I'm thinking, someone says, well, what's your leadership style? And the answer really is, uh, I don't know who we're talking to.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Really? Yes. What is that, being a chameleon? So being a leader is being a chameleon?
1: It is adapting what you say, do, your tone anything at all the mode of your communication some people mean respond well no mode also your method of the, oh, okay. how you're delivering your communication some people receive feedback better in writing uh with a text some people need to have that face to face other people can deal with a call and you do need to adapt your style and as a leader matters
0: by the way you listen to mary gamba this is steve adubato this is the leadership hour stay on this for a second um I am curious about the adapting your style to different people because um, I'm going to say there are people that we work with on a regular basis that – we've had this discussion before – that I am – I feel like sometimes – and we've done the eggshell conversation a million times, right? I feel like I'm walking on eggshells for fear that I might make them feel bad by telling them something that is very direct and needs to be told in order for them to grow. Truthfully with you, I – I always feel like there's respect, but there's very direct, mm-hmm. candid conversations both ways. Um, why, shouldn't I want the other person to get to the point where he or she can just have the same direct conversation? Or do I have to adapt to that person's personality and style?
1: I think you need to adapt. And I think it's that way not only in the workplace, also at home. or Kids are different. Well, and not even just kids. I'm even just saying like with family members, there are some family members that you can have a much more uh, passionate and spirited conversation with uh, than other family members or friends. I have certain friends who we have very, you know, a short communication and we pick up right where we left off, whereas other friends, I need to do a little bit more massaging, a little bit more checking in and... Some friends
0: can say, "Well, you stop being ridiculous? Exactly. And others?
1: And and others, if you did that, you will just, they'll shut down, they won't listen, and the same thing in the workplace, for sure. This is
0: interesting, because even though we're supposed to be talking about leadership, we're talking about relationships, Mm -hmm. we're talking about human dynamics, how much of being a great leader is really a product of understanding human dynamics, understanding different personalities, as we call separate realities, as Dr. Richard Carlson Uh, Coined it in his book Don't sweat the small stuff How much of it Is being an expert Which may be Really all about Dr. Daniel Goleman And Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence How much If you had to give it A percentage Is about that whole Thing
1: Oh good question I would I would give it I feel like I'm on Card Sharks Now I'm dating myself Remember that show And you used to have to say Higher or lower Oh, Really? Yeah, Card Sharks? You do not remember that show Uh, They would survey An audience Thank you Brian Great show and they would survey survey an audience and how many, what percentage of people really? said, oh my God, it's a great show. Anyhow, uh, I would give that a high percentage at about 90%, I think. 90% is I about do.
0: knowing the mm-hmm. nuance of the people involved and the personalities yes. and the defensiveness. You and, need to be uh, aware.
1: Because if not, you're going to be spinning your wheels. You're going to use an approach that is not going to resonate with that person. And then it's just going to take you longer to get to the end game. You and I have the same opinion when it comes to just getting stuff done let's just cut through the chase let's figure it out and be productive and sometimes you cannot be productive with certain people if your tone if your demeanor if your mode of communication if what you say offended them to such a point they're going to shut down they may even cry they may even close their door and be not productive
0: you stop when someone uh, i don't want to belabor this you've had people cry in your office i have someone said you made me cry
1: yeah yeah
0: did you make that person cry
1: Yes, and I need to accept the fact that— You made
0: the person—no, you didn't.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, sure, you could then easily turn it around. I'm sorry that what I said made you cry.
0: No, you didn't make the person cry. The person chose to cry because he or she Mm -hmm. was having a very difficult time hearing what needed to be said. Now, if you're calling someone a name, if you're degrading them on some personal level, that's totally different. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're talking about. But we've had people cry Mm -hmm. when we've had to actually tell them things they needed to hear. Yeah. You didn't make the person cry.
1: True, but you never know. And again, going back to what Neil had said about teaching— Neil Shapiro at WNET. hmm yep. And just, it's that human—you don't know what they have going on in their life that day. Maybe they just found out a family member is ill. Maybe they had a death in the family. Maybe they're just really having a bad day. Is that
0: the job of the leader, to understand those things?
1: It is. Not— at the cost of the organization's success, I'm Watch not that saying balance. that it's finding that balance and also then making that tough decision that maybe they are a little bit too soft and not the right fit to be on your team. And you know, but then you deal with it at a later time.
0: It's interesting you raise this as a more final point. I want to raise because you mentioned in the two minutes we have left. And by the way, check out the uh, second half of the Leadership Hour with a State of Affairs that I'll be hosting, a public broadcasting program that we shoot out of our uh, studio with our partners, our colleagues at uh, NJTV, their studio in Newark, a great studio. And by the way, check out their nightly broadcast uh, NJTV News with Mary Alice Williams. But the second half of the Leadership Hour is, in fact, a state of affairs uh, with leaders in government and public positions. But I'm curious about this. I lost my train of thought because I was going on that whole thing. (laughs) Um, You were talking about, uh, help me, Mary. I
1: I wonder where you were going. uh, About about, adapting, you may need to let somebody go. Maybe they're not the right fit for your team. You got
0: it. You got it. I'm not losing it yet. So you may have to let someone go. You know how many colleagues, people I've coached, clients, if you will, who said, I really think so-and-so needs to go, but he or she has a family crisis. He or she has a family issue. Their child is sick they're dealing with a parent, they're dealing with a divorce, I can't do it now," you say. Talking I, leadership.
1: I am talking leadership, and it is, of course, case by case. You do need to be empathetic, sympathetic, but not at the cost of the organization. You can help them to find ways to help themselves if that's the case, meaning if it's not a good fit in their current role, maybe there's another department if your organization is large enough where you can give them a oh, second you put opportunity. put them somewhere
0: else where so it's someone else's problem?
1: Maybe there's a better fit. Maybe the current role that they're playing is not the best fit for them. Maybe you can do that, and, and if that's not the case... Maybe you can help them in other ways, just whether it's finding them a resource, finding them the right doctor, showing them that you do care enough. However, it's still a business when it comes to the end of the day.
0: And the reason I'm raising it is because I agree with everything Mary just said, but I've had many clients I've coached who have punted for five years plus. Can't do it.
1: Mm -hmm. You could pump for a little while. I mean, you are are a human being. Oh, no, no.
0: I agree in punting Mm -hmm. for a little while. Punting indefinitely with someone who is not performing and hurting the team and putting more pressure on other team members who are giving maximum effort, that is not a leadership strategy that ever works. Uh, hopefully that is valuable because that is the point of the leadership hour is providing valuable tips and tools uh, that will make a difference for you, not just as a leader in the workplace, but at home as well. So I want to thank Mary Gamba, my colleague, Brian Brodeur, and his team, and uh, most of all, thank you for listening to the Leadership Hour, whether on the radio at AM 970, or on our regular podcast, and uh, we'll check you out next week.
1: This is Mary Gamba, stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey.
0: This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources.
2: Hi, I'm Brian Granulati, President and CEO of the Atlantic Health System. At Atlantic Health, we believe in helping our communities stay informed about the healthcare issues that affect them every day. That's why we're proud to support healthcare programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation.
3: State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV Studio at Two Gateway. Funding has been provided by. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. United Airlines. Atlantic Health System. Building healthier communities. New Jersey Resources. Choose New Jersey. Our mission is attracting companies to the Garden State. The Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. Founded by the Jewish community. And by the Northward Center. Promotional support provided by AM970 The Answer. And by NJ Advance Media.
0: Welcome to State of Affairs. I am Steve Adubato. More importantly, we are coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJ TV studio in Newark, New Jersey. You know the studio well. This is uh, Ryan Haygood, President and CEO New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. Good to see you, my friend. It's
4: good to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me, as always.
0: Anything going on in your world?
4: You know, it's a busy time uh, <laughs> Didn't you just have a generally? conference?
0: Didn't did. you just have a big we conference? Did. We did. Didn't you just use the number 94%? Sure. And what does that number mean? I'm, I'm sorry if I was going to joke around. I realize you're yeah. serious business. 94% of what did what? Sure.
4: So there was a rally for the 94%, which Steve was really inspired by a meeting that I and a bunch of other folks had with the governor back in May.
0: Governor Phil Murphy.
4: Governor Phil Murphy. And it was really a meeting to follow up on one of his transition committee reports. I had the honor of chairing one of Governor Murphy's transition committees. Uh, And in this committee, we were able to get in a number of policy recommendations around economic justice, around criminal justice reform, around voting. So this meeting in May with the governor was really to reassemble a number of folks who were working on the transition document and who had been advocating for these issues. And Steve, it was at that meeting that the governor shared with us that he'd received 94 percent of the black vote. And this, frankly, was an interesting thing to share, given that folks in the room, mostly black, were very aware of how Governor Murphy got elected. So he, yes, he got 94 percent of the black vote. Governor Murphy got 82% of the Latino vote, but he only gets 47% of the white vote. Put differently, his opponent, Lieutenant Governor Kim Guadagno, got the majority, 53% of the white vote. So, but Why for is all this, this
0: relevant? well,
4: because but for this robust support from Black and Latino voters, it's unlikely that Governor Murphy becomes the governor. And so, for us, the question is, what is the value, Steve? What's the value of 94% of the black vote? What's the value of 82% of the Latino vote? What's the value of near-unanimous support from a particular uh, demographic here black voters?
0: Okay, you're defining value. Uh, let me interpret this. Sure. In terms of public policy, what is it that you think sure. and your colleagues, uh, those who voted for Governor Murphy, who happen to be African-American sure. and Latino, but let's stay in the African-American community, what does he owe?
4: Sure. So I think what made Governor Murphy so attractive as a candidate was the way he campaigned. He talked a lot, for example, about his leadership on the NAACP's national board. He talked a lot about his heart for social justice issues. He spoke very directly to issues that black folks, Latino folks, people in New Jersey cities were facing around employment, around access to wealth, around criminal justice reform, around building an inclusive democracy in New Jersey. So the truth is... You know, so at that time in May, you know, he wasn't doing particularly well. You know, in that meeting, we asked him in response to his point about getting 94 percent of the black vote. You know, Governor Murphy, are you reminding us of your popularity among black voters when you say that? Or are you telling us you've got 94 percent of the black vote because you have a specific plan to address some of the challenges that black voters in particular are facing in the state?
0: Ryan Hagen, which one was it?
4: At that time, he didn't really have a clear plan. He definitely indicated that he has a heart for black voters, he has a heart for people of color more so, so broadly. his heart's in the right place. But I think you need to, along with the heart, you have to have specific plans to address real challenges faced by black folks in this state. Well, let's
0: break this down. By the way, Steve Adubato, if you're listening on the radio, Steve Adubato here, that's the only reason I do that with uh, Ryan Haygood from uh, <coughs> New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. When we talk about, there are three key areas. When we talk about social justice reform, particularly for youth, Changing youth social justice. What does that mean? Sure. So one of the challenge. So one of the a lot of the work
4: that we do at the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice as we look at some of New Jersey's racial disparities. And as you know, you and I have had the benefit of a long relationship. We talk a lot about these issues on camera, off camera. That's right. So okay. New Jersey has some of the worst black to white racial disparities in America. I'll for just example. share a couple. Yep. So if you look at the racial wealth gap, New Jersey is one of the wealthiest states in America.
0: Medium income white families? Medium is? income white folk, white medium
4: net worth for white families. $271,000. African American. Highest in America. Mm-hmm. But by contrast, the median net worth for New Jersey's black families, $5,900. Yes, that, those I, numbers are staggering and they bear repeating. So for white families, the median net worth, this is not income, this is what you have that's right, when you yeah. don't have income, right? So the median net worth for New Jersey's white families is $271,000. This is the highest in America. But by contrast, for Latino families in New Jersey, the median net worth is $7,020. How for black families, it's $5,900. How are so they living on it? That's the thing, it's very difficult. We have some of the widest racial wealth gaps in America. So, the question for us when we're speaking to Governor Murphy is look, we know you've inherited, this is not a new phenomenon, no. right? We're talking, Dr. King came to New, new Jersey, to Newark in particular. 50 years ago this year to build support for the Poor People's Campaign. So this is something that Governor Murphy has inherited. It's not fair to say that this is a new phenomenon well, on his watch. what can do,
0: other than raising well, the minimum wage?
4: So minimum wage is a part of the way you deal with pay equity, right, um, income inequity, but you have to have a specific plan. So some other states, for example, the, the governor of Massachusetts, who's a Republican, uh, convened a round table of some of the best thinkers, academics, advocates, scholars, impacted people to look at wealth in, in that commonwealth. And he seated that table with about $10 million to act on some of the policy recommendations that those folks would come up with. So part of this for Governor Murphy is to have a specific plan to interrupt those racial disparities in wealth. It can be done. We've got some of the finest thinkers, some of the finest institutions, some of the finest advocacy organizations in New Jersey. Governor mm-hmm. Murphy could definitely take a page from the governor's playbook in, uh, in Massachusetts. Is he
0: committed but- to doing that? So I think we
4: are starting to see a commitment to that. You know, he's following the rally we had, you know, as you mentioned at the top of our conversation, we had a rally for the 94%. Right. To be clear, this was not an anti-Murphy rally. It was not. It was not. It definitely was not. In fact, it was sort of conceived from the idea when President Obama was in office, you know, I was working for a national organization. He would often say to us and to other advocates, you know, if what you want from me is to do this particular thing, you have to make me do it. You have to give me the political cover to do and it, and that is what. You're and so that's to do with what Governor was. Ins- what, that's what inspired the rally for the 94% to focus Governor Murphy on these critical issues impacting Black and other voters.
0: In the interest of time, I'm not trying to stay on this. Uh, right to vote for people with criminal convictions. Why is that an issue that disproportionately affects the Black community?
4: Yeah. So in this last election, we saw that voters in Florida, through an amazing grassroots initiative, mm-hmm. enfranchised. million people with criminal convictions. It's inspiring because the truth is there should be no connection between the criminal justice system and voting. So we think that New Jersey is poised to be the next Florida. There are 100,000 people in New Jersey who can't vote because of a criminal conviction. You think
0: that's antiquated? Sorry for interrupting, uh, Ryan Hager. Do you think that's just wrong thinking? Absolutely, first of all, the Someone says you gotta pay the price. Well, what's the price? the The price is you can't vote.
4: But how's that upon us? So the truth is that what we've learned about voting is that it actually helps to advance criminal justice aims. Voting helps to reduce recidivism, helps to facilitate re-entry. So if we really care about criminal Mm. justice reform, voting is a critical piece to that reform. If you withhold the vote, you actually undermine criminal justice aims. So there are 100,000 people in New Jersey who can't vote. There's been uh, legislation introduced by Shavonda Sumter, uh, Senator Cunningham, uh, Senator Cunningham, Senator Ronald There's Rice, city, right? some very yeah. courageous leaders, and I promise that we're going to see some real traction on and this the pres- bill. The very governor's soon. on board on this. So we think the governor has indicated a, a, a commitment to this bill, to this issue, and part of the campaign was really to help reinforce his commitment to the issue.
0: Let me try one more. Uh, legalized marijuana. Why again is that an issue that you and your colleagues? raised with the governor as it relates to the 94% of the vote in the black community going for Governor Murphy. Yeah,
4: so there's a lot of conversation around legalization. We see this is a trend nationally right. of marijuana. Part of it is that however it happens, it's got to be done with a social justice lens in mind. So we know that black and brown communities have been most impacted by the war on drugs. There should be reparative restoration in communities when we what talk about... Mean? Restorace. So part of it is, look, there are real issues related to who's currently incarcerated around marijuana and other drug offenses. Disproportionately be, blacks over whites. So however legalization happens, it should apply retroactively. So those who are incarcerated for those offenses should be released. They should really? be autumn. absolute. That's got to be part of the legislation. Otherwise, how are you making it legal going forward when folks are still caught up in a system? So That'd we're going to make it legal, but if you,
0: you smoke pot four years ago, you're still doing time or whatever it is. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. <clears throat> there should also be automatic expungement
4: for issues like so. I think part of what it means to make people whole when you do social justice is to look back at those who've been most impacted by those right, you
0: keep, policies. I got thirty seconds. You keep talking about Governor Murphy. Uh, yeah. I'm going to play the word game with you. Sure. I say Donald Trump. You say
4: the people. Yeah, I say the people. I say I think this is a moment the rally was inspired by the people. It wasn't so much about elected officials, even though we are there to hold Governor Murphy accountable. We really there like to say, people, there are two pieces of voting. One happens in the ballot box. The other happens when you leave the ballot box and you hold your elected officials accountable. So, yes, Steve, this is a difficult national moment, but here in New Jersey, we know that change has always happened from the ground up, and that's what we're doing on these issues right now.
0: Ryan Hager, he is the president and chief executive officer of a great organization called New Jersey Institute for Social justice, and uh, he's our friend. Thanks for having me, Steve, as always. All the best. Stay right there. This is State of Affairs. We'll be right back right after this.
3: To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve SteveAdubato.
0: State of Affairs is pleased to uh, welcome John Jacoby, Pre- Professor of Health Law and Policy at Seton Hall Law School. Good to see you, John. Good to see you. Thank you. One of the areas you focus on is uh, the question of parity when it comes to health care payment. What does mm-hmm. that mean?
5: The, the parity movement has been around for 20 or 25 years. Is it more? Uh, the, the first big federal bill was passed in 1996. Uh, the idea behind mental health parity is that coverage for mental health services should be on parity, should be the same essentially as, as coverage for physical health services.
0: By the way, before you go any further, I should have clarified this is part of our ongoing series on the future of health care, and the question of
5: parity in terms of what's paid for and what's not, is a huge part of the future, right? It is, it is, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Go ahead. One, one, because uh, there there has been problems in New Jersey and elsewhere uh, of people with mental health issues getting access to appropriate care. And the second thing is that as we move to an integrated healthcare delivery system where physical health and, and mental health uh, occur in the same place, we don't want there to be confusion over what's paid for and what's not.
0: So hold on one second, are we saying that that if you seek and receive mental health services, that insurance companies and others, the government as well, don't look at it the same as if you have a broken arm? Uh,
5: Sometimes yes, sometimes no. There's low-hanging fruit that's been picked off. So insurance companies have worked pretty hard in response to federal legislation and state legislation to uh, be on the right side of the law here. Uh, And what they've done well, I think, more or less, is to make sure that there aren't payment limits, uh, that is... Uh, like a cap? C- a cap, a cap on the number of visits or on lifetime, uh, a lifetime expenditures for mental health services. Insurance companies have done quite a good job with that. Here's the problem that, that arises still, and that's conceptually quite a difficult problem. And, and that is uh, that uh, at, at times insurance companies will deny coverage because they will assert the coverage is not medically necessary. Um, and, and insurance companies can do that. They can, they can review a doctor's order and determine whether it's medically necessary or not. Mental health parity requires that the process that insurance, insurance companies go through be identical or on parity for physical health and, not, and, and mental health services. Sometimes it's not.
0: I'm curious about this. We talked before we got on the air about Medicaid. What does the question of Medicaid and the payments as it relates to Medicaid have to do with the future of health care?
5: Uh, Medicaid is an incredibly important payment system. I, I would argue that Medicaid is one of the most important government... what Medicaid
0: agencies. is versus Medicare.
5: Medicaid is a, is a program for low-income and disabled people. Um, and Medicare is a social insurance program for retirees and some long-term disabled people. So Medicaid covers a very large number of births in and, and New Jersey, a very large uh, percentage of the nursing home days in New Jersey. It covers people with very serious, complex medical conditions who have low socioeconomic status, very hard group of people to to treat, a very hard group of people to help with their health status. Medicaid needs to change. Uh, from an insurance program that just pays for services when someone goes to the doctor and gets services to one that helps to organize uh, health care services. What does it mean,
0: organize health care services?
5: Think and by about the way, it. the government's supposed to do this? Well, the government should facilitate it. The government uh, the, the government uh, created Medicare. Medicare pays for services. The question is, how will that payment system provide incentives for health care providers to look beyond the narrow medical condition that someone presents mm. with? and instead look at that person's entire context so that if someone comes in with diabetes or uh, COPD, the health uh, healthcare provider will have an incentive in a reformed Medicaid system to look at that person's entire context. As opposed context. to it being
0: fragmented, if you will?
5: Yeah. The fragmented nature of the way patients who fall under this Medicaid category are treated medically is not healthy, is it? It's not healthy. It's not, and it's not just Medicaid, but Medicaid is probably the most important program for which we should uh, look to uh, fragmentation and fix it.
0: Quick question on this on legislation. I don't want, uh, if you want to check it out, it happens to be Assembly Bill 2031 um, that has worked through some of the steps that the state needs to be involved in in terms of all insurance companies and consumers so they better understand what they can get and not get as having to do with access. I know it sounds jargony, in the weeds. Why does this matter?
5: It, it matters because we, we don't want uh, people to think they have insurance and then find out when they... Uh, get you mean in the small print? Uh, well, sometimes it's not even in the small print, but, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it is. So what's this legislation do? It, it helps people get access uh, to coverage uh, so that when they get health care services, they know whether their coverage will provide uh, will, will provide all the care that they need and not be surprised when they get home and not have, not have coverage.
0: John Jacoby is a professor of health law and policy at Seton Hall Law School. I want to thank you for joining us. Very important conversation. Thank you, John. Thank you. Stay right there. We'll be right back. I'm Steve Adubato right after this.
3: To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Audubato. State
0: of Affairs is pleased to welcome Senator Stephen Orojo, who represents the 24th Legislative District, which is where, Senator?
6: Yeah, up in the uh, northwest corner of New Jersey. It's got uh, all of Sussex County. 11 municipalities in Warren, and Mount Olive in Morris. So now let's talk
0: about this. It's the largest in the state. Yeah, yep. and folks there are just as concerned as everywhere else in the state about tax policy. Mm -hmm. We've talked to you many times before, and you've talked about, hey, our tax policy doesn't make sense in the state. What does that mean?
6: Well, first of all, um, we put so much of the burden on residents as opposed to, you know, not putting the burden, more of the burden on out-of-staters. Like, for example we talked about the transportation trust fund right and right there uh, we had a major tax restructuring and people were n- annoyed at the gas tax understandably but quite frankly it was all going to property taxes so what new jersey unfor- you know, unfortunately for years on a bipartisan basis both republicans and democrats was a debt spend and hide and it was raising raising debt sure spending you know out of out of control for uh, for things and it was hidden Because like in the transportation trust fund, it was all falling, the debt, all falling on the backs of New Jersey residents and going, falling to property taxes. Unfair? Very, very unfair.
0: Very unfair. Let me ask you this. Let's talk about tax fairness. We've had Governor Murphy on when he was a candidate. We'll have him back in early 2019 talk about fiscal policy in the state. The governor has talked about uh, New Jersey being the innovation state and looking to attract Mm -hmm. folks to come here great state for innovation, great state to do business. How could you possibly be against that? No, I don't think anybody's against that. What's the challenge?
6: The challenge is how do you make the state affordable or, or competitive for capital? We had Amazon.
0: It was looking As at of we're doing today, I don't want to date ourselves, we're doing the deck, Jackie, what's the date? I know we're doing it in the middle of November. It looks like we lost that deal.
6: Yeah. What does that have to do with this? Well, for, well first of all, it's... It's companies who want to invest capital to have a decent rate of return. And capital is like water. It follows the path of least resistance to success. And the cost of government and the tax policies all have a, a factor in whether you're competitive to people want to invest capital. And I've always said capital equals investment, investment equals jobs. And when we have more people working and more jobs being created, New Jersey does terrific. But Senator, let me ask you
0: this. Mm -hmm. Are we saying that no matter what happens with the governor and the folks uh, who are trying to promote this innovation initiative, and by the way, we have a relationship with Choose New Jersey, which is very much a part of this, are you saying no matter how effective the marketing is, the tax policy or the perception of the state trumps, I'm sorry for using that expression, that whole effort? It
6: it could, depending upon how much value people think they get from the investment they're going to make. Define the value. Is it ROI? Uh, that, 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 that's part of it. The return on investment, certainly, because that's something that's easily measured. But there's a lot of other intangibles that go with it. We got, and we got great assets. We do. We got we got our New Jersey workforce. We have a, one uh, an excellent education system. Our, Access to uh, airports, transportation. Our locations system. great. Our locations. But, great. but, our cost of government, and our cost, whether it be fees and taxes, make it a lot of times too unattractive for somebody to invest here. Now we can easily get that that value that value back.
0: Easily. Hold on. I we had so. to, we had the Senate president here, Senator Steve Sweeney. Steve Atabado here with Senator Orojo. Um, who is very much involved in fiscal policy yeah. in the state. We have the Senate President talking about his initiative. Yeah. The, were you part of that? I was a co-chair. You were the co-chair we of that did initiative. A great job, yeah. And and the senator and, and you and others worked very hard. They were looking to cut the cost of government and one of the right. things they looked at was municipal consolidation, shared services, merging local communities, you say?
6: The idea of shared services, we need as many shared services as we Should can Should we get. force it? Should the state mandate it, The idea of mandating, because small communities, we actually found out, and Mark Pfeiffer, who's an yes. expert in this area, found out that a lot of times the small communities are more efficient. They're actually less per capita. However, the idea of shared services, and one of the other big uh, issues in there, was the regionalization within school districts we could go from over 600 school districts to less than half or just about half of that. Which would do what with property taxes? Um, which would help uh, bend the cost curve of property taxes we have now because it would help reduce the administrative costs and and, and whatnot. Because um, let's face it, on a to K-12 district, everybody's going to the same high school. That's right. right. But I think Senate President Sweeney had done a, a, a terrific job. He's out there working extremely hard. What I said easily is because the assets are always going to be the same. We've got the workforce that is great, we've got a location that's great, we have an infrastructure that is terrific, and now they're gonna properly
0: maintain it. Let me ask you this, we have some of your other colleagues coming in today on the Republican side of the aisle, and I feel compelled to ask them, and also Democrats, others, on this question. President Trump, as he enters his third year mm-hmm. in office, a little over halfway through as we get to this point, how's he doing?
6: I think, you look at the results, the unemployment rate is is, is down. Sitting was it uh, less than four um, percent? I think the results are there. I would wish the rhetoric would be different. The um, tweeting. Well, the twin, but the rhetoric on, on many sides.
0: Well, well let's do the president pr- right now. Not just the president. I've known you for a few years. I've right. never known you to be respectfully a name-caller. I've never known you to be someone who demonizes your opponent. My mother would be mad at well, me. Well, <laughs> my mother would be as well, and that's why I don't. But my right. point is this. It's not about partisanship at all. What it is about is about tone and tenor and demeanor, executive demeanor, if you will. Right. You don't conduct yourself that
6: way. I don't, and I try to do it by example, and I try not to... You know, go personally attacking anybody because that's not the way I was. But isn't that
0: also part of the way you've been able to work with folks on the other side of the aisle? Absolutely.
6: Well, then, what advice would you have for the president in that regard? I would actually, you know, my advice to the president would be: we want to be classy Republicans. I want to be classy Republican. It it doesn't matter in how you treat people. Words, words do matter. The results—you can't argue with the results either. I mean, mean mostly economic policy. Economic policy. And the idea that um, you know, listen, look all the different trade deals and whatnot, um, America has always helped everybody, right? Let's make sure we have fair trade. Fair trade, um, but at the same time, the, the tone, the tenor, um, it do, that does matter. I mean, it does. One of the most important Two seconds books, left. Go ahead. One of the most important books I ever read was "How to Win Friends and Influence People" by Dale Carnegie. Great book. Right? Excellent book. Uh, how to Stop Worrying and Start Living is another one. <laughs> but how to, how to win friends influence people. And you know what? People want to be treated with respect.
0: On that note, Senator Stephen Oroho is from the 24th uh, Legislative District. He's been engaged in fiscal policy in the state and dealing with trying to reduce costs, if you will, right. and try to keep uh, taxes down as well. But I'll tell you what, when we continue to talk about the governor's initiative as it relates to this innovation state, we'll have you and your colleagues on as well. But as always, uh, you're a gentleman, Senator. And Thank we appreciate the civility of the too. discourse. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Stay right Thank there. You. Thank you. I'm Steve Adubato. This is State of Affairs. Let's continue the conversation. So follow me on Twitter, at Steve Adubato. See you next time. Promise from the NJTV studio.
3: See you then. State of Affairs with Steve Atabato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 25 years of broadcast excellence. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV Studio at Two Gateway. Funding has been provided by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, United Airlines, Atlantic Health System, New Jersey Resources, Choose New Jersey, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, and by the Northward Center. How do you create change? By cultivating hope. And we see that every day, in the eyes of our preschoolers, in the souls of the seniors in our adult day program, in the minds of the students at Robert Treat Academy, a national Blue Ribbon School of Excellence, in the passion of children in our youth leadership development program, in our commitment to connections at the Center for Autism, and in the heart of our community, the North Ward Center, creating opportunities for equity, education, and growth.